Welcome everyone to Two Guys to the Dark Tower Cave, a podcast where we discuss the characters, connections, and deeper meanings of Stephen King's magnum opus, The Dark Tower. I'm Jay Russo. And I'm Sean McGurr. You can email us at twoguysdarktower at gmail.com. To support the show, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. In this episode, we'll conclude our coverage of The Stand with chapters 74 through 78. Let's start the show! The novel ends with Stu and Tom facing a harrowing journey back to Boulder, Franny having her baby, and the next steps for the Boulder Free Zone and its residents. Then, in an epilogue included in the bonus edition, the Dark Man reappears. That's it. Sean, your recap was short and sweet, just like the book we just finished reading. (laughs) Yeah, it was a little bit unusual that we had 78 pages left to go in the book after our big climax last episode and stuff happens but i'm not sure if 78 pages worth of stuff happens i agree i think just like uh the elliot poem this book ends in a whimper yeah yeah and it was much more pessimistic than i remember it being like i have this in my mind like hey they defeated flag and Stu and tom make it back home and franny's baby's okay and things are great. And it's not like that at all. Those are the things that happen, but it's a lot more pessimistic than how I just said it. Especially ending on the the note where um, it ends with our two, I guess, most beloved characters, or at least the two characters who are supposed to be the most optimistic, you know, Stu and Franny. They're the couple that we've been rooting for for this entire book. And they finally get their happy ending. They're together. They've defeated evil. They're, They're off on their own on a grand new adventure. But they're both worried about how long will it be before humanity wrecks itself again. And Stu thought it would be better, much better, if they did break down and spread. Postpone organization as long as possible. It was organization that always seemed to cause the problem. And then kind of thinks of organization and civilization and humanity as a whole as like kind of like cancer. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really dark way of looking at things, especially when... Throughout this whole point, they've thought that Flag was the main bad guy and that if we can deal with him, everything will be okay and that getting together in the Boulder Free Zone will will cure that. And when they when Stu gets back and he realizes there's a literally a new sheriff in town and mm. you know, he wants to introduce guns into the equation and have much more power and he realizes he doesn't know everybody, it gets really dark really quick in a way that I just didn't remember like at all like it being that bad and that was even before we get to the the real dark part right Uh, which is that that flag returns as well in this new form and just all of this is just king really not giving us the happy ending that we thought now to be fair both Stu and franny are lighting out for for the territories which in this case is heading east instead of west yep it's not just that they're raising the baby that Franny had with Jesse, but Franny's pregnant again. And so they have at least enough faith in the world that they're okay in bringing more people into it. And they realize that they're going to have to return to civilization at some point just so that their kids can get socialized and eventually meet other people as well. But neither one of them is really that sure of what is going to happen. And, you know, the book basically ends with Stu asking, like, is everything going to be okay? And Franny's like, I don't know. And you're like, oh, wow. Yeah, I guess so. I think King is making it very clear that even without knowing Flag from 
the Dark Tower or other places he's appeared, that Flag is not the cause of these problems. Flag is a symptom of these problems. He shows up, he's an opportunist, right. and he makes a bad situation worse, but he can't exist. He can't be successful without the bad situation already being in place. And it's pretty clear that in King's version of the world leading up to Captain Trips, that things were not great. And right. the reason why Captain Trips came into being and the reason why it escaped into the world and killed 99% of humanity was because the world was ripe for such a tragedy to happen. Yeah. Very reminiscent of Salem's Lot in that way, where the vampires were able to come in and take over Salem's Lot. Mm -hmm. But there was enough corrupt and little e evil there that the big evil was able to come in and exploit that. Yeah. Same in uh, Needful Things, too. Yeah. Yeah. Boy, it's almost as if King has a common theme running through his work. Yeah. <laughs> yes. People in civilization are bad. And the low-grade evil in small towns yeah. in America. Yeah. Although, you know, he makes mention that a lot of the problem, and we talked about this early, early on in, in the book, but it's that theme that's been running throughout is that a big part of the issue is that there are a bunch of toys laying around that anyone can pick up and do stuff with. And whether that be the Captain Trips flu that was being created or the bomb that Trash Can Man finds or whatever else is still laying around, um, those are the things that are going to eventually cause more problems. And Stu seems to think it's the guns being introduced in Boulder, where before you might have just had some drunk getting beat up. Now there's a possibility that, that somebody's going to be dead as a result of, of this. And he just wants to get away from all that, which you could sort of understand. Yeah, the constant escalation of the size of civilization and then the, I guess, the the escalation of the arms race Yeah, to keep that civilization safe. Um, I think Stu says something along the lines of, as soon as the town is so big that the sheriff no longer knows everybody by name, then he needs a gun. And as soon as the sheriff has a gun, then people can do things in a kind of anonymity and the crime gets worse. And then the sheriff needs more guns and more deputies and et cetera, yep. et cetera, et cetera. Before you know it, you have a reason to have nuclear bombs so that you can destroy another nation with a press of a button. Right. And yeah, let's just rinse and repeat until the end of time. Yeah. And Glenn had mentioned a lot of this in his talks with Stu. Like he initially thought that after the flu, there were going to be a bunch of little fiefdoms, right? And they'd, mm -hmm. be, they'd, they'd be spread out and there'd either be trade between them or, or conflict. And Glenn was sort of surprised that that didn't happen. Instead, what happened was that there was just two groups. There was the Vegas group and the Boulder group. But with Franny and Stu leaving, and there's, you know, other people who are feeling the need to to leave, you wonder if that's what's going to happen, what Glenn had mentioned, that now there'll be these little groups all throughout the United States forming all over. And what he what he said was going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. So I guess the positive side of Stu and Franny's situation and their reflections is that this is a, a season of rest. Mm. This is, if you want to look at it in a, I guess, a, a longer time frame, this is the calm between storms. Yeah. So for at least a generation, maybe two or even three, there won't be problems that are out of control big for right. anybody to deal with. There'll be maybe smaller scale challenges and the rebuilding of society and things like that. But it feels like it's just going to take a while before there's a critical mass of humanity and culture and civilization before that arms race escalates to the point where I was talking about a moment ago, 
But King still doesn't let us have that even moment of reprieve because he concludes the story with, guess what? Flag didn't buy it with that nuclear explosion. He didn't get hurt by it. He zapped himself to another place. Or was zapped. Or was zapped there. And basically he's back or, or maybe another way of looking at it is he never left. Yep. And he's now on this island of people who he can see, like, I, I can easily manipulate these people to just bend to my will and dominate them even more completely than he could have the people of Vegas. Yep. So for him, this is just yet another game to play, yet another time to exercise his evil ways. Yeah, it really ends on a dark note in that aspect. And again, this chapter wasn't in the original version of The Stand. So we just got the you know flag disappearing when the bomb goes off. But King writing this, and it's again with flag not remembering everything that happened. Like his memories are slowly coming back to him. Who am I? Why am I here? What do I do? And pieces mm-hmm. of rock songs are coming into his mind and, and little ideas. He's like, exactly what you said. I'm going to be able to take over, manipulate these people. Um, Maybe because he's on an island, it'll be contained and he won't be able to, to cause as much trouble. But who knows? Yeah, it's 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 dark. And what's interesting is that I think we we might touch on this in Dark Tower Thinnies, but the fact that Flag is on this island, we don't even know if he's on the same version of Earth hmm. that he was on just a moment before when Trash Can Man and the bomb went off. You know, from a Dark Tower Thinny perspective, Flag has been on and often even travels between worlds. Right. Maybe this time it was like a reflex. He didn't know that he was going to a different level of the tower. He just, he knew he was in intense danger and immediately needed to do something. And in doing so, he completely hit the reset button on himself and brought himself to a point where, like he did at the beginning of the stand, like he did in the, in Eyes of the Dragon, he didn't really remember a time before. Mm. And he had to slowly come into his own, remember who he was and what his motivations were. And that's why he repeats himself. That's why he ultimately fails a lot of the time, because he's just going over the same dance steps over and over again. Yep. But here, he's on an island that could be on the same planet or, or a parallel one. Either way, he's still, still alive and kicking, and he's still ready to do some more evil. Yep. Now, on the other hand... We mentioned before about how there seemed to be this balance between Flag and Mother Abigail, but we still see the hand of God working in some ways, even after the explosion, which was the actual hand of God, right? So there are a lot of little things that are mentioned or dropped here, um, especially in Stu's journey back. So the fact that Tom just miraculously shows up and was able to find Stu and and -hmm. rescue him and get him to safety and get to a hotel where they can be warm and safe for a while. Um, the fact that this happens all during the Christmas season seems important. You know, they're traveling over the Christmas and New Year's. I think that that's, you know, another sign of, to some extent, like there's hope in, in the world here. And then even sort of this miraculous appearance of Nick to help Tom uh, guide Stu's recovery through a, a ghost of Nick that's talking to him and offering him advice and and really helping out. Yeah, I mean, this literal hand of God first detonates the nuclear bomb, right? Right. And in doing so, effectively does a little flick of the finger to flag, (laughs) as if this giant Monty Python cartoon hand came down and just did one of those little twing, and flag goes sailing off and lands on this island. 
But the hand of God isn't done with its work yet. Like you said, it rallies Nick's ghost and it guides Tom to be in the right place at the right time. And let's count Kojak in that as well, right? Mm. If Kojak hadn't been on the journey west, Stu would have had nobody to help him survive long enough for Tom to arrive. True. So I think if we're going to attribute these wonderful coincidental things to the hand of God, I mean, Kojak fits into that. Exactly. Yeah, absolutely. And Tom is the only one who actually witnessed the bomb going off and, and survived. Right. You know, I think Stu feels it and is able to crawl up to the top of the washout and, and see the mushroom cloud. But Tom had seen it and he said, God fixed that bad man. The hand of God came down out of the sky. And so, you know, that's obviously the tale that's going to be told when they get back to Boulder, that mm-hmm. that there was this divine intervention, maybe through a nuclear weapon or not, but that someone actually saw the hand of God come down. Um, whether or not that's Tom or God's Tom, right? Yeah. Tom keeps going in and out of that sort of phase he goes into when he's, he's hypnotized, but he talks about the actual hand of God. So I think that brings us to some of the big themes of the book, right, Jay? Yes. It's pretty easy to say what happened in this section, but I think King starts to intertwine and bring us to these big themes of the book. And obviously, religion's a big one. And that's one that maybe went over my head when I first read this book when I was a kid. Like, I just Mm -hmm. saw it as a, you know, post-apocalyptic novel and then a battle between good and evil. And I didn't put it in that Christian terms. But reading it again this time, it is so obvious how much of an allegory that King wants this book to be and how important religion is, um, and the faith of the, of the people involved. And then, you know, the actual denouement with, with an actual hand of God coming out. I think religion is just right there if you want to look for it and, and dig it up. I would even go so far as to say there's no allegory. I mean, allegory <laughs> requires a bit of metaphor, and this is just like nail on the head. But like you, I originally read this book and didn't really see the Christianity in it. I just focused more on the broader or maybe um, less specific sense of good versus evil. And yeah. I think it still works with that lens. You don't really lose anything. But King was very clearly doing something here with Christianity specifically. And all of his characters on the Mother Abigail side, especially Mother Abigail herself, right, is a Christian character to the degree that they of how they see the world or the lens through which they see the things happening around them, why they might happen. And the decisions that they make both before and after, you know, the plague begins. So there's so much Christian language. There's so much Christian symbolism to the point where, like we said in our last episode, when the hand of God comes down, it's a deus ex machina that's justified or at least appropriate because so much of the the book leading up to that point is actually God's influence. Yeah. So it's okay if, you know, God is in the machine here. Because God has been in the machine since page one. Absolutely. Absolutely. And then that other one that we touched on a little bit earlier, just the fact that evil is always going to be around. Like you're never going to be rid of it, even if the hand of God comes and and wipes it out. Like you're going to have that evil, whether it be the mundane evil of, you know, drugs going around town or sheriffs pushing their power around or, you know, the bullies from Nick. You you have a feeling like some of those bullies are going to be back in, in, in Vegas. One of the facts that interested me was there's so many people coming into Boulder again in the spring. Like there's this this huge influx of people again. Mm -hmm. And you wonder if there's this much people coming to Boulder, what about the people who would have been going to Vegas? Where are they going to go? And you got to think like they're going to be in Boulder too or somewhere else. So just that evil that goes around. 
Um, and then, you know, the civilization threatening itself, just all those toys that are left behind and how people are going to find them and what are they going to do with them? And, and they're still out there for people to pick up. Those themes were two that I saw that ran throughout this book. And just to kind of echo what I said earlier about how the pure evil is represented by Flag, mm. and he does not cause these problems, but he exacerbates them. And while that level of evil is probably the most dangerous thing, it can't exist on its own, and it doesn't last very long. It burns itself out, right? Yep. But it needs the mundane evil to exist and to be pervasive and to build to a critical mass before the pure evil like flag can be like the icing on the evil layer cake. Yep. With a nice layer of uh, civilizations threatening itself, filling <laughs> Boston cream civilization threats. Yes. I must be hungry. Mm. Civilization cake. <laughs> and, you know, to your point of like, cake is necessary, right? We all need cake. And civilization, even though King sees the problems with it and is fond of pointing out where there's problems, it's necessary. Like, mm -hmm. even when Franny and Stu leave, they say, we're going to have to come back if only to socialize our kids, if only to find them people to hang out with and, you know, maybe marry one day. And that's okay. Like, one of the great things about Boulder was seeing it being put back together and the fact that a small group of people were able to come up with solutions to actual problems and organize. And even in the place at the end of this section where, you know, they get a census bureau and they get committees together. And even though that stuff's boring, it works. And there are still mm -hmm. good people who are bureaucrats and are able to put that stuff together. And so King isn't totally like, hey, we all need to be mountain man living on our own we we still need some sort of civilization and, and socialness to bring us together yes human beings can only be so successful and survive so long as individuals it is that civilization that is the glue to to how we outlast our own lifespans and help the subsequent generations and also help each other during our own lives so it's a that double-edged sword of what civilization is um and in some ways, I guess it's a necessary evil. It's like, uh, to your point, I don't think anybody would last very long without it, but it is in and of itself eventually going to cave under its own weight. Yep. And part of that might be just how the civilizations are put together. So I think another big theme that King has in this book is the difference between love and fear. Mm, for sure. Mother Abigail and Boulder seem to be put together by love. Um, you get the sense that the heroes of our story care about each other and love each other, whether that be romantically like Stu and Franny or platonically like um, Glenn and Stu and Larry and Ralph going off towards Vegas, whereas Vegas is really built on fear and fear can only take you so far, but love can win the day. And it seems sort of trite saying that out loud, but I think think it was a fairly obvious theme and one that King seems to believe in. Oh, he definitely does. I, I think a lot of his stories revolve around that very concept. And there's no time limit on love, right? Mm. Love can last forever. And whereas flag, um, flag, I, I said flag when I meant to say evil. How's that for a Freudian <laughs> slip? Whereas flag or evil, you know, they have a shelf life because if you manipulate and control people through fear and i think we talked about this in our last episode yeah eventually you're going to reach a breaking point the people who you are subjugating through fear will either just figure there's nothing left to lose and push back 
and now you've lost control or they will break completely and they will be ineffective as as subjects like they'll just do nothing so a society built on fear can't last so if you have two societies who are competing for the same resources and things and one is based on fear and the other is based on love in the long term the one based on love is going to be the one that wins yeah even if they can't resort to the dirty tricks and they're bound by the the rules of fair play and and kindness and things like that right right all right well as we tend to do when we get to the end of a stephen king book let's give a little bit of a what happened with the reception of this book um we often turn to goodreads it gets a 4.34 ranking which is fairly high out of five stars but what I thought was impressive, Jay, is that there are over 618,000 ratings of this book on Goodreads and over mm-hmm. 20,700 reviews of this book by people, which just seems like a phenomenal amount. And as you can imagine, this book comes up high on lists of Stephen King books. So Rolling Stone has it as the number one book in its readers poll. Esquire says it's number two and it would be number one if not for the expanded edition. They like the original better. Oh, wow. Yeah, Vanity Fair had it number two. So um, no surprise, I don't think that for the most part, this is a beloved King book. It's got to be one of his most popular, if not most popular, period. Yeah. Um, maybe it, it might eclipse it, especially in recent years because of the movie adaptations and the popularity of those movies. But The Stand is like the quintessential King novel. Yeah, it's funny. I, I can't remember which one of these lists it was. It might have been Vanity Fair, but I think... You know, the stand was number two, and I think they had Pet Cemetery as number one. Wow, which, which was sort of weird, but for for me, um, and they said we know that King doesn't like Pet Cemetery and thought it was even too dark for him. But yeah, it constantly is in the top books, and that's no surprise, I don't think. Um, the reviews were not as favorable. I was only able to find one contemporary review from the 1978. Kirkus said it struck a far less hysterical tone than The Shining. But King has written his most sweeping horror novel yet in the stand. And though it may lack the spinal jingles of Salem's lot, and some King fans will be put off by the pretensions here, most will embrace them along with earthier chills. And then the 1990 version. Can I interrupt you? Oh, yeah. I'm giggling a little bit at the idea that Stephen King fans who at this point in 78 have only had three or four books to read would be put off because... They're too pretentious for <laughs> lowbrow the stand. Like, I'm pretty sure if you've liked the other Stephen King books up to this point, you're going to like this just fine. Yeah, I think so. You're probably right. The reboot in 1990 was not given quite as much of a rave review. The, the New York Times, in an otherwise negative review, said that in the stand, Mr. King comes across as the people's Thomas Pynchon, which I thought was a, a nice line. But they, like others, did not like it. Uh, Booklist said, it adds up to less than the sum of its parts. Publisher Weekly said that the extra 400 or so pages of subplots, character development, conversation, interior dialogue, spiritual soul-searching, blood, bone, and gristle make King's best novel better still, which was a positive one. Yeah. But Kirkus said, eh, if you've read the novel in its shorter form, you've read the novel and don't need the new version, unless you're a Stephen King fanatic. So yeah, mixed reviews. And you know, coming into this book, I think, Jay, I mentioned that when I was growing up, not only did I say this is my favorite Stephen King book, but that this was my favorite book, period. Like, this is the one I, I talked about. I must have read it, you know, half a dozen times between the first time I read it in the mid-80s, the original, to when the, the new version came out. Mm-hmm. And having gone through it this time, 
with a more critical eye as we tend to do. This is what our 13th episode on, on this book. Yep. And having read so much King recently and so much good King recently as well, I still think that this is a good to great King book, but it's not any longer my favorite. And I might agree with some of these folks that maybe the uncut edition is unnecessary, especially as I started to look at what the difference was between the the old and the new one, thanks to our good friend Red Fright, who was on for one of our bonus episodes, who talked through some of those changes. I sort of get where he's coming from and 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 looking at the changes. I don't know how much they add. They add to the story in that, hey, there's a lot more to the story, but I don't know if they add more to it. And in fact, because of the time jump, maybe take away. Now, having said all that, I will say that I respect the hand of God ending a little bit more, just because as we were talking earlier, the religion is such an important theme of this that it doesn't seem as out of place as it did to me in the past. So that's sort of my final thoughts on the book, Jay. I'd, I'd love to hear what you think. I agree with a lot of what you just said. I've always thought of this as one of King's best books, but after covering it the way we did, I don't think it's as high on my list as it used to be. I still think it's near the top of King overall. Yeah. He has a lot of books that are not as good as this. A lot. A lot of books that aren't as good as this. Uh, and that's that's kind of a backhanded compliment. Um, but of the books that we've read just for the podcast, I don't think this is even near the top of those. Like, I think Salem's Lot is a much better book. And most of the Dark Tower books, I think, are better than this. Mm. Um, the Gunslinger is always going to be very near, if not at the top of my my Stephen King list. Anyway, I don't need to <laughs> go through a whole ranking here, but I still really enjoyed this book overall. I also agree with you about The Hand of God. I, I mentioned this a little bit earlier, that it makes so much more sense to me now looking at it more carefully, picking up on all the Christian symbolism along the way that the hand of God fits. And I also agree that the uncut edition is unnecessary. It's egregious, but I would keep the flag epilogue. I mm. think that helps That helps in a lot of ways. I think it, it makes flag seem more dangerous and more evil. It also helps to integrate the stand more effectively and completely into the Dark Tower. Mm. Because without that, it's just flag is just a random representation of evil who vanishes like Obi-Wan Kenobi at the <laughs> end of the book. And we don't know what happens. But right. with the uncut edition, we know that flag continues on and that he can, you know, kind of phase in and out of spots and it fits with the Dark Tower stuff. And to quote the publisher's weekly review, I think that one of the things that the uncut edition does give us is that extra blood bone and gristle mm. and i think that if you take too much blood bone and gristle out of a king book it suffers and so giving king a little bit of that extra breathing room to add those things or expand upon them i think the book benefits but i think there's there's just one too many extra characters there's one too many trips through a dark scary tunnel we didn't need that much. And right. if he's going to add 400 pages, maybe expand on a few other things in a few other ways where we found lacking. But overall, still one of King's best. And I'm happy to have read it again for this podcast. Oh, no. I, yeah, I totally agree. I think obviously 30 episodes, we had a lot to cover and a lot to discuss. Mm -hmm. And I think I caught more than I ever had before in reading this. Like I wasn't just turning pages to find out what happens to our crew and you know, I do still think, and I've read a lot of post-apocalyptic novels, it sort of became a thing for me. And, <laughs> you know, I think this book is is high on the list of post-apocalyptic novels and often is the template for other people doing post-apocalyptic novels. That first section, when the flu sort of floods across the country, 
and people are dying and the survivors need to gather together. Like all that stuff is so good. Yeah. And it's really the best and tightest part of this novel, as we've discussed. Um, but it's so engaging and so realistic to some extent. You know, I know 99% of the world dying doesn't seem realistic, but like, were you to imagine something like this happening? It's almost like King's got a perfect view on it. Like, this is what would happen. Like, it doesn't seem that far-fetched that this is how it would play out. And I just think he did that really well. Sean, I know this was just a short chunk of the book, but did you find any Dark Tower thinnies? Yeah, I got a couple. So, Jay, the first one that I noticed was that when they're talking about Franny having a child, Mm -hmm. they say, she had him on the fourth, a boy, six pounds, nine ounces. Four, six, and nine add up to 19. No way. <laughs> you just blew my mind. Well, let's see if I can at least equal that. Because we find out that when Stu is writing down his phone number for his home in East Texas, it's 713-555-6283. And the last four digits of that phone number add up to, you'll never guess. 19? 19. All right. Yeah, but 555, that's got to be a fake number. Yeah, I tried (laughs) calling it. I didn't get anywhere. Man. (laughs) So we've alluded to this, but the fact that the book ends with an epilogue called The Circle Closes really sort of tags on to how the Dark Tower ends, right? Like, this is a loop. We've got flag resetting. Mm-hmm. And and starting his journey of evil once again, sort of a, a mirror image of, of Roland to some extent, maybe? Yeah, for sure. I, I see that reset as a new loop, and therefore I count that as a thinny. Yeah. Another thinny that I, or at least another thing that I considered a thinny was much like the Crimson King's child, Teehee, which was a spider with a human face, Stu has this scary dream of Franny giving birth to a wolf with a furious grinning human face. And that face was Flag's face. Mm. And then it goes on to say his time had come around again. He was not dead, not dead yet. He still walked the world and Franny had given birth to Randall Flag. That's scary in so many different ways. And yeah. I, I couldn't imagine having a dream like that about my wife giving birth to a wolf with Randall Flag's face, let alone uh, a wolf. But nevertheless, Wolf, human face, spider, human face. I, I see some some nice tight parallels there. Yeah, I agree. It's almost as if King had the the ending for the Dark Tower in his mind, and he was working through it in this expanded edition of The Stand. Hmm. At, at one point, Flag thinks, life was such a wheel that no man could stand upon it for long, and it always, at the end, came round to the same place again. So that whole circle closes idea is there again. Ka's a wheel. And Jay... The epigraph for the circle closes section, it's from Edward Dorn, who, as we know, is a poet who wrote a long-form poem called The Gunslinger. And that epigraph is the same epigraph from the very beginning of The Circle Opens. So, yep. so King is literally ending the book the same way he begins it. Yep. Yep. Waiting for patient zero to come back and start things over again. Yeah. All right. Well, we have a few yucking it ups. Yeah, I was actually surprised that I managed to find a couple in this section. So when the nuclear blast goes off in Vegas, Stu 
very desperately climbs up from the the washout where Mm. he's been pulled up for several days. And as he's climbing to the top, he he grabs at the very edge of the the black top and two fingernails peeled back like wet decals. And he cried out. The pain was exquisite, galvanizing. (laughs) Oh, oh, his fingernails just peeling back and the wet decals. Oh, King, your ability to write disgusting imagery is just superb but yikes that is gross i mean Stu's a little bit i mean he's got a freaking leg that's broken in multiple places you would think that that would hurt worse but i guess not hurt worse than just yanking two fingernails right off ah, eh. what do i know so in the space of uh a few pages we get a description of how Stu kills and dresses a deer so that he mm. and tom have some dinner and as he's dressing the deer Stu's sleeves get stiff and tacky with blood. And then later on, just a couple pages later, when he's having that dream about Franny's birth, that same imagery comes forward where his sleeves in the operating room were stiff and tacky with blood. And I just thought that that was a nice little, very obviously intentional callback, but like uh, you can really sort of picture that, like his leather jacket that's just all like bloody and then like that memory stays in his mind during that birth of the wolf that you just mentioned earlier. Ugh, mm. It's a little much for me. But that's like spot on for how our minds and our dreams work, right? Yeah. It, like he wouldn't have come up with that out of nothing in his dream, but he did that. He had that experience in real life. And then the very night he dreamt about his sleeves covered in blood. Yep. It's pretty horrific. Um, yeah, I was just complaining a little bit, or maybe I was just throwing a little subtle shade on King for too many trips through scary tunnels (laughs) but the last yucking it up that i found in the book here was when Stu and tom and kojak are making their way through one of the tunnels again Stu notices that there are still dead bodies everywhere in the cars that are frozen in place at this point in the winter and the victims of the plague had been transformed into grotesquely decayed ice cave exhibits so that left me with the image of all of these Captain Trips tube neck rotting bodies who were now just flash frozen. Yeah. To be preserved exactly that way until at least spring. And it's just like, ugh. The grossest possible dead body with little icicles hanging off the nose and oh, stuff. Yeah. All right. Well, we want to thank our patrons as always for supporting our show. Reminder that our patrons get access to exclusive Patreon content, such as bonus podcast episode. And Jay, I don't want to speak for you, but I've been having a lot of fun with the short stories and movies that we've been looking at and reviewing to further our understanding of King's works. Oh, please feel free to speak for me on that, because I agree. It has been a hoot going over (laughs) some of these movies and both the good ones and the not so good ones. They're all fun. They, they are all fun, and if you would like to hear some of those fun episodes, visit us at patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower, and you can learn how you can support our show, which really helps us out, as well as hear some of that bonus content. Yes. Jay, 13 episodes of The Stand, and here is our last fun stuff around The Stand. All right. Well, there's always been plenty of fun stuff. This has been a great book and a lot of fun, so why don't you kick us off? All right. So uh, we've talked about Kojak and what an important part he has to play in the story. And at one point he comes back to Stu and Stu says, hey, you're some kind of dog. You know it. 
Kojak wagged his tail to show that he knew it. <laughs> I mean, anything with Kojak is fun stuff to begin with. So yeah, just just putting that out there. But when he called him some kind of dog, it was reminiscent to me of Charlotte's Web when Charlotte writes some pig in her web to uh, to bring attention to. Can't even remember Harvey Wilbur. Harold Wilbur Wilbur. Yeah, I should have known that, right? Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, it was nice to see King reference a children's book that wasn't Watership Down. Yeah, <laughs> that wasn't an allegory for the horrors of civilization. Yes, and, and politics. Um, I thought it was hilarious when King directly referenced Rambo four. Yes. Which at the time was, it didn't exist. So he just made up a sequel and he called it Rambo four, the firefight, which <laughs> is kind of a believable title for a Rambo movie. Totally. The, the funny thing is that when King was rewriting the uncut edition, um, the most recent Rambo movie, Rambo three had just come out in 1988. Mm. But since the publication of, of this book, and I guess if you just count all of them, there have been five Rambo films. So King's tongue in cheek, you know, yeah, there'll probably be another stupid sequel to this stupid series of movies. No, no offense to fans of the Rambo movies, but yeah. they're not exactly highbrow. Uh, there was First Blood, Rambo, First Blood Part 2, Rambo 3, Rambo, and then Rambo Last Blood. So King was pretty close with the Rambo four. Yeah. Yeah. And this totally reminded me of Weird Al, as most things do, uh, specifically in the movie UHF, when he parodies Gandhi 2. And Gandhi 2 is when Gandhi <laughs> takes things into his own hands and That's becomes right. a, a Rambo-like character uh, taking care of terrorists throughout the, the world. So uh, That's right. No more Mr. Passive Resistance. <laughs> Uh, good times. I, I will say that King has talked about his love of the First Blood book by David Morrell, mm -hmm. um, which became the first Rambo movie. It's one he actually taught when he was a teacher. Yeah. It's sort of, a, a in his mind, a, a great Vietnam story, post-Vietnam story. And so uh, he has a lot of respect for it, but I have a feeling that respect doesn't carry over to the later movies. Yeah, I to to give Stallone some credit, the First Blood movie is a good movie. Yes. The fact that they turned it into a franchise and made a bunch of silly sequels is the, its downfall. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so we talked just a bit about how um, Tom has a vision of Nick. Mm -hmm. And at one point, they're in a pharmacy, and Nick's talking to Tom and, and telling him, you need to take the, you need to get these medicines to Stu. These are the ones you need him to take. If this doesn't work, then take this one. And at one point, Tom's facing one way, and then Nick sort of disappears and like appears behind him, and he's dressed in a pharmacist coat, like a white pharmacist coat, and he's behind the, the counter of the, of the pharmacy, and he has the pills that he wants Stu to take laid out in front of him. And I kept thinking to myself, this reminds me of something. I couldn't put my finger on what it was. And it came to me that it was very familiar to me as what happens in the movie The Shining when Jack Nicholson's character is at the bar and the bartender mm. shows up and puts the liquor down in front of him. And it's just there, right? And like just sort of, it's magic, right? It, it's the one thing you can't sort of explain is just a hallucination, the fact that there's actually alcohol there. The same with the pills, because when... The vision of Nick disappears. The pills are still there. But I think it was the white jacket that got me. Because if I remember correctly, the bartender's wearing a white jacket. 
I don't remember how the bartenders dressed in terms of white jacket or not, but aside from that, yeah, you're spot on. That is that is exactly a scene out of Kubrick's movie. Yeah. I don't remember if King ever got into that level of detail in the book. No, it's been so long since I've read The Shining, but I, I'd like to to take a look at that. If anyone knows, let us know. But um, that was my thought. And of course, that makes it fun stuff. Yep. Another fun stuff thing that I had was the atomic blast from Stu's perspective was as if God had suddenly stamped his foot down on the desert floor somewhere not too distant. Which calls to mind exactly like a Monty Python joke. Yeah. One of the the cutaway cartoons where this foot just drops down from the top of the frame and makes a sound when it lands on everybody. I think that's pretty much the only way to interpret that. Agreed. So at one point when Stu and Tom are making their way back, Stu's trying to think like what what their solutions are for, for getting back to Boulder as quickly as possible. And at one point he's like, oh, we could cross country ski. But then he says, trying to teach Tom the fundamentals of cross-country skiing made Stu's blood run cold. And I was thinking to myself, Stu grew up in East Texas. I can't imagine that he knows a hell of a lot about cross-country skiing either. Mm -hmm. And Tom's not, like he picks things up. He knows how to ride a bike. How much harder can cross-country skiing be? Yeah, in, in Tom's defense, I was a little bit annoyed at that, honestly. Like as soon as I read that sentence, I said, first of all, Tom has... Every single moment of this book shown people up when they have underestimated him. Yeah. Even to the point of his intellect, like he's smarter than people give him credit for. And everything else that he does is he has almost like a, a, a mystical sense of how things work. Yeah. So why wouldn't he immediately grasp how to cross country ski? And to your point, Mr. East Texas is probably going to be worse on skis <laughs> than just about anybody. Right. <laughs> And my final fun stuff and the final one for this novel takes place in the epilogue. Flag, now Randall Faraday, says to himself as he's thinking about taking these people and and corrupting them and making him part of his minions. Rome wasn't built to today, nor Akron, Ohio, for that matter. And as you may or may not know, I'm about 15 minutes away from Akron, Ohio, and I can agree it was not built in a day. That's right. It's like three or four, right? Yeah, at least three or four. At least three or four? Okay. Big, big town. I mean. They've been working on fixing Main Street for three years, so maybe a little bit longer. (laughs) All right. Well, that's going to be all for this episode of Two Guys to the Dark Tower Came. Thanks, Jay. Thank you. Links to all of our social media is available in the show notes. If you like the show, please rate us on Apple Podcasts. To support the show, visit patreon.com slash twoguysdarktower. Next episode, join us as we begin our coverage of the Stand Limited series on CBS All Access. Jay, I'm excited. This will be our first foray into discussing a TV show as it airs. Yes, I am super excited myself. I can't wait to see the show and I can't wait to talk about it with you and share our thoughts with our listeners. Yeah, so look for that. Our plan is to have our show out within a few days of the show premiering on CBS All Access. And we look forward to that. So for Jay Russo, I'm Sean McCurr. Thanks for listening. Jay, I'm excited. This will be our first four-way. It's going to be our first four-way. I don't know what happened to me. (laughs) Who else are we going to have on the show, Jay? (laughs) That's a good one.